0: Hello and welcome to ACS Chemical Biology's podcast for August 2012. I'm Jay Suarez, Managing Editor for the Journal. I encourage you to stop by our ACS Chemical Biology community site on the ACS Network by visiting www.acscbcommunity.com. Also, I'm happy to announce that we have an expert in our Ask the Expert section. David Spiegel from Yale University will serve as our expert on synthetic immunology please feel free to stop by our community site and ask questions. The current issue of ACS Chemical Biology features 21 research papers, including a thought-provoking manuscript from Molly and Brian Shoichet that reports the aggregation of anti-cancer drugs to form colides, causing reduction in efficacy as chemotherapeutics. Moving on, we're now joined by Rick Schnellman from the Medical University of South Carolina, author of a manuscript in the current issue of ACS Chemical Biology that reports a new peptide inhibitor of a target implicated in type 2 diabetes. Hi, Rick.
1: Hi, how are you doing?
0: Good. So your current manuscript focuses on a peptide inhibitor of calpain-10. What exactly are calpains?
1: Calpains are a family of enzymes that are cysteine proteases, there's a variety of different type of cysteine proteases, but this would be one class. There's about 15 family members in this class. And calpains have been studied for a long period of time. At least some of them of uh, these isoforms, have been studied for a long period of time. For example, calpains 1, 2, 3, and 4 have been studied extensively for 10, 20 years or longer. So there's a lot known about those two. With the rest of them, There is very little known about some of them and a moderate amount with the others. And CalPain-10, for example, is one that there is only a little bit known about CalPain-10.
0: Okay, then why did you focus on CalPain-10?
1: There's two reasons why we focused on CalPain-10. One of the reasons is that CalPain-10 has been associated with diabetes, And it's not necessarily a causative factor of diabetes, but it's been associated in gene studies in various subpopulations around the world. So that's one of the clinical reasons why CalPain10 was on our radar. The other reason why CalPain10 was of interest to us is that we're very interested in mitochondrial function. And so we knew, and other people have reported, there was a CalPain-like activity in mitochondria And so a number of years ago, we did some studies and determined that Calpain-10 was resident in the mitochondria. And so with that question then becomes, well, what does Calpain-10 do? And calpanes, just like a lot of proteases, suffer from the fact that there's inhibitors to the broad classes of calpanes, for example, or caspases, which is another cysteine protease. However, there's very few inhibitors that are very selective to a given isoform of calpanes, such as calpane 10. And so, if we wanted to study calpane 10, Obviously, there's only two general ways to do it. Either you would manipulate calpain-10 genetically, which we've done, but also it works a whole lot better if you can also have a pharmacological inhibitor to manipulate it because the action is much more rapid and you can detect changes. And so, in a previous publication, we identified a peptide that seemed to be specific for calpain-10 and we then did a number of studies trying to optimize the peptide of which we did, and we then found that we could identify a concentration around 100 nanomolar that it would inhibit the enzyme around 50 percent. So that was certainly potent enough. However, in additional studies, we found that using mitochondrial matrix, which is that the sociebo proteins, or using isolated mitochondria, it was very effective. However, it was not effective in cells. And so the hypothesis was the limitation that structurally there was some reason why it could not make it from the outside of the cell to the mitochondrial matrix. And it's that question is why we then worked on the study that was recently published in your journal. And so the concept was, how are we going to change this molecule such that it increases its permeability or access to the mitochondria? And so the idea was that perhaps if we put on a lipid linker to the molecule, by doing that, perhaps that would then take it into the mitochondria where it would then selectively inhibit calpain-10 there. And fortunately, the system did work, and by adding these lipid molecules to the peptide, they did reach the mitochondria, and they did inhibit calpain-10 in the mitochondria in cells, and also, by its inhibition, when you use a biological readout, that is, when you inhibit calpain-10 in mitochondria, does its substrate levels go up, and we found that they also did that in cells. So it certainly looks like this is working pretty good in cells. Now, one question is, is why is it more selective, perhaps, to Calpain-10 than the other ones? And one thing that's slightly different than some of the other peptide or other Calpain-10 inhibitors is that this inhibitor works on, at least to a significant degree, the P' side of the cleavage site. And so that is our hypothesis why it's more selective for Calpain-10 and then other different Calpains.
0: Okay, so moving on to my final question then, what next with regards to your CalPain-10 inhibitors?
1: Well, that's interesting because we certainly need to improve the inhibitor from the point of view that this one is not stable enough to do in vivo studies. And so that's what we're trying to do now is change the peptide and make it more resistant to degradation so we can do some in vivo studies. So that's what we're doing looking forward. Unfortunately, though, is that we've also done a variety of other studies since that time and we found that Calpain-10 is absolutely important for viability and such that is if you overexpress Calpain-10, it will kill cells, and if you knock it out, it kills cells. So it obviously needs a very specific levels in cells for viability. At the same time, when we looked in other models to see what the levels of Calpain-10 were and during different disease states, we found that Calpain-10 levels are decreased in the kidney of humans, rats, and mice, and also in diabetes in the kidney. So in this case, having low levels of Calpain-10 is the problem, at least in whole animal studies. And so using inhibitors, we can then fairly dissect the mechanism how low levels of Calpain-10 causes perhaps pathologies.
0: That's really interesting, and thanks for joining us today.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: Our second and final author for today is Elizabeth Boone from Stony Brook University in New York, author of a recent manuscript that reports a new pathway for bacterial communication. Hi, Liz. Hi. So to start off with, I'm curious, what exactly is quorum sensing?
2: So quorum sensing is basically a chemical language used by bacteria to make decisions based on the number and types of other species in their immediate vicinity. So bacteria use quorum sensing to regulate group activities such as biofilm formation, virulence gene production, and also the production of light or bioluminescence. So you can imagine that depending on whether bacteria are alone or in a group, they would make decisions about whether or not they want to participate in these group decisions. One of the classical examples is virulence gene production. So when bacteria is basically all by itself in a host, it wouldn't want to start making virulence genes because the host would easily be able to detect it and kill it. But if the bacteria were able to hang out and wait until a whole population of bacteria were there, and then at the flip of a switch, they could all start making virulence genes at the same time, then the bacteria have a chance of overwhelming the host. And so this is typically what quorum sensing is used for, and that the term quorum sensing implies its meaning, which is that you're sensing when there's a quorum present to do these group behaviors. So the way this works is that bacteria are able to synthesize and secrete and also detect certain small molecules. And these small molecules are called autoinducers. And so basically the bacteria are synthesizing these small molecules, sending them out into the environment. And theoretically the concentration of these small molecules in the environment ought to be proportional with the number of bacteria making and secreting those small molecules. So these same bacteria have detectors that can sense the presence of these small molecules. So when the small molecules reach a certain concentration in conjunction with cell density, they're detected, and then the bacteria respond.
0: What are the previously known autoinducers that play a role in this form of bacterial communication?
2: Sure. So it turns out bacteria are multilingual, so they can speak many different languages, apparently species-specific languages and then also interspecies languages, so probably the best understood examples of this multilingual behavior are in gram negative bacteria. So in gram negative bacteria species specific communication is achieved with molecules that are essentially a class of N-acyl homoserine lactones. So they're all have this homoserine lactone structure and then the identity of the acyl side chain is what makes them species specific. So certain species will synthesize and detect homoserine lactone with a particular side chain, particular acyl group on that homoserine lactone. And then interspecies quorum sensing is achieved with molecules often termed AI2 for autoinducer 2. They're basically cyclic derivatives of a molecule called dione, which is also usually referred to as DPD. So, this was first discovered in Vibrio harveyi and in Vibrio harveyi it happens to also be boronylated, so it's a borate diester derivative of this DPD molecule. And then Vibrio, in particular, apparently have a genus-specific or Vibrio-specific autoinducer called CAI1 because it was first identified in Vibrio cholera, so it's a CAI1. So basically, I think a lot of people assume, as my paper perhaps demonstrates, that there are other molecules that we haven't yet discovered. And so it's probably very complicated the number of different languages that bacteria are able to speak.
0: Okay, so your manuscript then describes a new bacterial language then. Could you briefly describe your findings?
2: Sure. So a tiny bit of background so you can sort of understand the reasoning. My lab is interested in nitric oxide sensing and signaling in bacteria in general. and this is an area of research that is far from understood, but we do know, That one family of nitric oxide sensors that's been identified in bacteria is called the HNOX family for heme nitric oxide oxygen binding proteins. So our lab and others have shown that HNOX proteins in bacteria regulate nitric oxide-mediated biofilm formation, at least in some species of bacteria. And so essentially we knew that HNOX could be involved, that nitric oxide and HNOX proteins might be involved in bacterial group behaviors And so we were extremely intrigued when we found that there was a predicted HNOX protein in the genome of Vibrio harveyi. So Vibrio harveyi is sort of a model system for quorum sensing. It's really a species where a lot of the classic quorum sensing experiments have been done. And so what made the discovery of this HNOX gene in Vibrio harveyi particularly intriguing was that it was found in the same predicted operon, as a protein that was annotated as LUXQ. So, I need to tell you that LUXQ is a sensor in Vibrio Harvey that's a known quorum sensing sensor. So, LUXQ is involved in detecting and responding to the presence of AI2. And the way it does this is that when it detects the presence of AI2, it's essentially got a kinase domain that's able to exchange phosphate with a protein called LUXU. And so this predicted kinase in the same genome as one of these HNOX proteins was annotated as LUXQ because it had such high sequence similarity to this known quorum-sensing kinase LUXQ. And so this wasn't the LUXQ, but it was something that looked similar in sequence to LUXQ. So we later named this protein HQSK for HNOX-associated quorum-sensing kinase. And essentially our hypothesis was that since it's so similar in sequence to the LUX-Q that's known to be involved in quorum sensing, perhaps it too, like LUX-Q, can exchange phosphate with lux and therefore enter quorum sensing. And so basically what we showed in this paper was that essentially that that was true. So what we determined was that nitric oxide caused Vibrio Harvey to produce more light than they otherwise would at a low cell density. And so, just in case it's not abundantly clear, measuring bioluminescence or the production of light in Vibrio harvii is a sort of a direct readout of quorum sensing in that bacteria because Vibrio harvii produce light through quorum sensing. And so, essentially, we discovered that nitric oxide is affecting quorum sensing in Vibrio harvii. And using genetics and biochemistry, we were able to show that, in fact, HNOX and this HQSK protein were responsible for this contribution to the light production in vivrio harveyi. And therefore, this basically consists of adding a fourth quorum sensing pathway to vivrio harveyi.
0: That is a really cool result. So yeah. what would you say is the biggest take-home message from your study?
2: Interestingly, in a way, this paper is sort of a preliminary discovery to what might be a bigger, more important finding. So in a way, it Muddies the water of how we understand bacterial communication and quorum sensing. The reason I say that is because although we now know that nitric oxide acts like an autoinducer in Vibrio harveyi, that is, that Vibrio harveyi respond to the presence of nitric oxide analogously to the way they respond to the presence of other autoinducers, we don't know the source of nitric oxide, and so that prevents us from really fully understanding what this means and why it's going through quorum-sensing pathways. So as I described at the beginning of the interview, it's relatively easy to understand quorum-sensing when you think about bacteria synthesizing, secreting, and detecting the same molecule, because then you can use it to account your population. But as far as we can tell, Vibrio harvii are not synthesizing the nitric oxide themselves. And so that means they're detecting nitric oxide that's being produced either by another organism or somehow otherwise coming from the environment. And so what this indicates is that quorum sensing is probably a lot more complicated than just simple population density counting. And putatively, even nitric oxide could be coming from a eukaryotic source. And so this could, although we certainly don't have the data to make this conclusion right now, it could indicate that it's sort of an inter-kingdom type of signaling. So the fact that it's going through the quorum sensing pathway indicates to me that it has something to do with environmental monitoring and monitoring of other species. But because we don't know the source of nitric oxide, it's actually difficult to understand exactly what the big implications are of the study right now.
0: Interesting results nonetheless, and thanks for joining us today.
2: Thank you very much.
0: To learn more about our authors of the manuscripts in the current issue, please see the Introducing Our Author section on the web. This month, we feature 11 young scientists, William Pomerantz, Christopher Branvold, Julie Champion, Allison Doak, Armando Hernandez, Bernadette Hernárez, Kate Higgins, Petra Parizek, Rebecca Sheck, Matthew Smith, and Memeng Zong. Read this section and get a younger chemical biologist's perspective on their research. We continue to describe chembio glossary terms on the air. This month's key phrase is quorum sensing, which is a process used by bacteria to communicate and gauge their surroundings and thereby regulate gene expression. For more information on quorum sensing, please refer to the manuscript by Elizabeth Boone. That's it for this month's show. Join us again next month for more ACS Chemical Biology highlights and interviews with our authors. To learn more about our journal, please visit us at www.acschemicalbiology.org. Thanks to all of you for listening.